Hello, rookies and longtime veterans, and thanks for checking out the 63rd dose of Scoring at the Movies. We saunter back into the past and look at old sports films, often from our youth. And we do spoil the secrets of the flicks in question, so make sure to watch this dreadful movie before listening to this episode. I'm the catcher who shakes his hand out after every pitch because he has the most sensitive paws since my dearly departed dog fox, Ryan Ellis. And here's the young phenom whose tendons are too tight, but he can whip fastballs at a terrifying rate. Chris Gregorio. It's not the only thing about me that's too tight, Ryan, you know that. You do have hands that look like they've never done an honest day's work in their life, so it doesn't surprise me that you've got the tender mitts of a dearly departed Pomeranian. And besides, if you've ever seen me play softball, you know I've got a cannon. And hands of stone also. Hands of, yeah, yeah, that's true. My hands are more pillowy soft than any man living, so I'm not somebody to throw stones in a glass house, that's for sure. There are so many things to criticize about this movie, but the way the catcher plays it, obviously Daniel Stern, who directed this movie, his only movie ever as a director told him to do that. But it's so dumb that he catches fastballs, even the fastest ones, and acts like, I've never touched a hard pitch before. <laughs> to do that once or twice is enough, but... I'm going out on a limb, because we haven't talked about this beforehand. I'm going strictly based on your intro now. That you did not care for this movie in a big way. Listen, I'm not going to be the one to defend Rookie of the Year, but this might be the first time we've ever done a movie on this podcast where it sounds like you're going to dislike the movie significantly more than I do. Because I don't think that's happened before. We both hated movies. Ready to Rumble Ready comes to, to Rumble, mind. notably. But usually I'm the Grinch that doesn't like the movie. We're going to share a lot of the same gripes here. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot wrong with this movie. It actually bums me out a lot to know that this is Daniel Stern's only directorial effort. Because I knew he directed it, but I didn't look at his credits. So I didn't know that he had nothing else to his name. And maybe it shouldn't surprise me, given the, mm-hmm. <laughs> given the choices. Fittingly, made. maybe. Yeah. yeah. Even though the movie succeeded, it made five times its budget. It did? You'd think for that reason alone, he'd get to make more movies, but he never did. Maybe he didn't like the experience. Sometimes that happens. Yeah. Henry Fonda produced one movie, 12 Angry Men. Never did it again. And he never did it again because he didn't like doing it. So maybe Stern had the same reason. I didn't read that online, but just speculating. It okay, two possible. things before we get any further on this. One is, I don't want to swear on this one. We usually do if we feel like it, even on the kids' movies. But if we're going to say the word, let's say fracking or something like that instead, so we can make this a non-E version of a podcast. The second thing is, you said when we promoted this episode at the end of Love and Basketball two weeks ago, <laughs> that you'd be very upset if you didn't like Rookie of the Year. Now, you said a minute ago that you liked it more than me, but I don't think you loved it. So are you upset that you did not like Rookie of the Year? Or did you like Rookie of the Year? This movie came out at exactly the right time for me, I think, because the main characters in this movie being Henry and his buddies are, I think, 12. They're Mm -hmm. meant to be 12 years old. And when this movie came out, I would have been 11 or 12 years old and a big baseball fan. So it would have been the perfect kind of, oh, look, I too, if I just break my arm in the most (laughs) improbable way possible, could somehow end up in the major leagues for the Blue Jays in my case. So regardless of the quality of the movie, I can understand why young me would have had a nostalgic fondness for it. it. There were actually aspects of it that I kind of thought were cute or fun. 
a lot of it was just tragically bad. And I would never say this is a good movie. If anybody over the age of 12 said, would you recommend seeing Rookie of the Year for any reason other than I want to see it with my kid? Then no, of course not. I don't feel bad about it, but I'm not going to say I loved watching this movie as a 39-year-old man. Maybe more than anything, it made me sad watching Daniel Stern <laughs> at times. Trying to play Kramer! Kramer! It, at least it, sometimes he came across like, and at that point, Seinfeld was getting big in 93, Cosmo Kramer. Is that what he was trying to do? Well, I don't know. The one scene I made a note about that, and then later on I thought, well, he's not really doing it. But one scene early in the film, he really reminded me of Michael Richards doing the goofy stuff. And nobody has ever been able to do that like Michael Richards playing Kramer. You have to have a specific talent for it, and it has to be within a specific comedic... I'm going to use the wrong word here. Ballpark? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one for this movie. Let's say ballpark. In Kramer's case, you've got a bunch of people playing it straight. Normal people having cynical conversations, and you've got the wackadoodle guy. You can't have the wackadoodle guy being all wacky and crazy when there's a bunch of improbably wacky and crazy stuff happening around mm -hmm. him, because then it's just nauseating to watch, which was the problem here. You've got a bunch of kids acting wacky in a kid's movie, and then you've got this middle-aged guy throwing peanuts at his face and unable to get them in his mouth and then choking on them. Ugh. Even for a kid's movie, this was in poor taste. And I like Daniel Stern. I'm sure you do too. And like Home Alone and City Slickers. The Home Alone movies, he's way over the top. And yet he's but it fits 15 times over the top compared. Yeah, it fits that. It yeah. would have fit this, but it's so much more over the top than even yeah. the Home Alone films. You know what a great performance is by Daniel Stern is only two years before this, City Slickers. Yeah, that's what I thought too. He's wonderful. And that is so is Bruno Kirby and obviously Billy Crystal, the whole cast. But those three guys as buddies, I saw that movie again not that long ago. And I still laugh at the movie, but I love some of the serious stuff in that, including some of the scenes with him. And that's why it made me sad, because I was thinking the same thing. The Daniel guy can Stern, actually act, and he does He this. can act, yeah. In his own movie, you think that, well, okay, he wants to cast himself in the goofy role. Fine. I can see why he wouldn't have played the Gary Busey role. But he probably should have, because maybe he had more of the talent for that. Because Gary yeah. Busey, who's a very talented guy for all of his weirdness, seems miscast as A, the grump, and B, the romantic lead. I 100% agree with you on the second point. One of the things that I did think worked a little bit for me in this movie was Gary Busey, only because he played it so toned down. God, yeah, especially compared to Point Break, only two years. City yeah. Slickers, same year, 1991. That's right. We covered Point Break only a few months ago. We loved that performance. <laughs> Get but, me two. Right, one of the great lines. <laughs> Utah, give me two. <laughs> but he doesn't really have anything interesting to do in this movie, nothing like that anyway. I wouldn't say it's a bad performance. But it does seem odd to play him in this romantic lead, the relationship with the mother, Henry's yeah, mother. That was awkward. Amy Morton does a pretty good job, actually, as a mother. She's got a snarky cool about her, which I liked. Yeah. But they don't really fit, and it seems like the movie's saying, you two don't belong together, but we're going to fit in anyway. I often criticize the movies we talk about being sports-centric, at least the ones that we talk about that really are sports-centric and not the ones that we talk about just because they're kind of sporty. I'll criticize them for having a shoehorned-in romance oftentimes. I love a basketball. That's what that movie's so much about, is Oh, yeah, romance. of course. That's central to it. This one, at least I understood why they had the romance subplot in it, because it's a Disney... This is a Disney movie, right? I shouldn't say this before I know it is. You know, ironically, it is now. We saw it, or at least I saw it on Disney+. Plus. You paid for it. You're supposed to come here and watch it with me, but yeah. you didn't do that. Fox Disney. made this movie. 20th oh, Century Fox, Fox did. Okay. But Disney, of course, owns them now, so that's how it's on Disney+. Plus. The movie was called Catapulti Henry in Finland. <laughs> Catapulti Henry. It kind of makes sense with the sound his arm makes. Yes. So ridiculous. <laughs> and it was released on July 7th, 1993. Our third movie from 1993 this year. We did Rudy, and we did The Sandlot. I much prefer The Sandlot. To this and somehow it was a yep. pretty big success like i said grossing more than five times its budget the critics didn't agree with that though 35 percent of them that's it three five like this movie but the average was 4.8 out of 10 so they got close to being okay with it 
and then 52% of audiences, but Rotten Tomatoes across the board. And it was 22nd that year. Jurassic Park was number one. Cool Runnings, we covered that a couple of years ago, was number 15. Yeah. The Sandlot was 50th, and Rudy was 69th. And by the way, you took a sip out of your beer. We didn't cover that already. What are you drinking over there? Though it is about a kid and his friends more than anything else, does have some awesome baseball facial hair in it, notably Gary Busey with his fantastic stash. One of the things I did like about this movie was Gary Busey's mustache. I went with Beardmore for this, just to celebrate the facial hair or lack thereof of this baseball movie. And the reason why I didn't hear a can open there again is because he opened it upstairs. We are was not going to wait. Sitting across from each other this time. Yeah, this is a weird and wild experience to be doing it in person again, but it's certainly a lot easier. We're especially. bubbling. We're taking a bit of a risk, but we are bubbling. But judge us all you want <laughs> bubbling, to. Bubbling, bubbling, and otherwise. Well, it looks like we won't really see any other people other than the four of us, the wives and the husbands. Exactly. Also do the nutshell, by the way, since we're at this point. Yeah. Let's see if I can do the voice here from Major League. <clears throat> Forget about the curveball, Henry. Give him the heater. <laughs> that was good. Well done. You really dug deep. That, of course, is from the manager in Major League when he says it to, Forget about the curveball, Ricky. Give him the heater. That's the same basic thing here because Henry's only real pitch is a fastball. Is there any movement on that? No. His motion is terrible. His form is so bad. He, of course, doesn't throw strikes a lot in the first couple games he pitches. Major League hitters can hit 103 mile an hour fastball if there's no movement and no location. One of the things that struck me in this movie, and granted, it is 1993, so velocity is not what it was then. That was enormous back then. Nobody was throwing 103 miles an hour. But even so, Major League hitters, Major League catchers are used to catching in 93 mid 90s certainly some guys were throwing high 90s if not with regularity you have closers that are throwing that you're right it's straight as an arrow there's no movement frankly the kid's like four feet tall pitching off a mound so it's probably just chest height to a full-grown man Mm -hmm. anyway coming straight across one of the things that i did give this movie kudos for because i couldn't remember anything about it really except for the basic overall premise me neither i hadn't seen this movie in a long time i knew the kid was going to throw fast i just didn't know how the movie would actually play out beat by beat so his first batter, that Mets player that I just like this touch. cranked one off that was him a good first touch. pitch. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. The first pitch he ever throws, the guy hits the ball nine miles. Because he's thrown it straight down the middle. Mm-hmm. Now, you can certainly make, I think, a very valid argument that later in the movie, he should still be getting walloped because he's still just throwing fastballs down the middle, essentially. But okay, at least they gave him that and then some wild pitches. Because it would have been easy for him to show up on the mound and just blow away the first three batters he faces, strike out the side, and everyone's a hero. So at least he did have a little bit of a struggle. And the Gary Busey, Happy Gilmore-esque, the ball wants to go in the hole. The hole is round, the ball is round, put the ball in its home. What are you talking about, Gary Busey? Yeah, that kind of moment. I don't know. (laughs) That was kind of cute too, but he should just get cranked all over the place. You know whose form is even worse than Thomas Ian Nicholas as Henry would be? Busey. Tony Danza in Angels in the Outfield, which was the year after this, his form wasn't very good. But it wasn't terrible. It certainly wasn't as good as Charlie Sheen in Major League. But Gary Busey looks like he didn't touch a baseball until they said, okay, action in this movie. <laughs> I agree. I did kind of like the fact that they cast him in a pitcher's role in the 90s when, let's be honest, a lot of players and pitchers certainly in the 90s were not great athletes. And Gary Busey does not look like a premier athlete, nor do I think he's meant to be. They Mm. call him Rocket all the time, the kids, right? Because he was Rocket, but he's not anymore. He doesn't want to be called that because he's a has-been and he knows it. Incidentally, speaking of has-been, do you see how crushed he was 
at the latter stage of the movie when he's told we're not renewing your contract at the end of the year. Earlier in the movie, this guy's being described by his manager as having like a 300 ERA. He's just getting annihilated. The fact that he was allowed to pitch through the entire season with what was probably just a terrible statistical line that year, he should be grateful for that. Don't be distraught that your contract's not being renewed. I mean, come on, man. But you're right, Gary Busey had freaking awful form, so it kind of fits his has-been character. Unlike Tony Danza. Yeah, but even if you're a bad pitcher at the major league level, you're throwing the ball in the mid-80s, probably. Maybe you used to throw it in the 90s when you were a rocket. Yeah. Now you're in the mid-80s and they're hammering you. Although he obviously improves enough that he becomes their main pitcher. And I'll ask this Which question right now. Highly but, improbable. Right. But he's supposed to be at least okay. It's like Rick Vaughn in Major League. He gets hammered early on. Also gives up a big home run in the beginning of that movie. Not his first pitch to his first batter, but early yeah. on to Clue Haywood. And at the end, he strikes him out in the big game. Which is what happens here. And just like Angels in the Outfield, so the Angels, Cleveland Indians in Major League, and the Cubs in this movie, all three at the time these movies were made, around the same time frame actually, were not good teams. So they were picking these teams that, I think it was the guy who did Major League, David Ward, said the redacteds can be yeah. successful in a movie because they weren't in reality. But then ironically, they got good right after, well, a couple years after Major League came out, maybe three, four years later. And the Angels were never terrible. But, of course, they wanted to use that name for that movie because of Angels Nailfield, which was a property from the 50s, a movie where the Pirates right. were the team that was the bad team. And the Cubs, of course, have so often been bad. But then it's funny, in this movie where there's nobody there through a lot of the season, Yeah, that the me. Cubs have always drawn a crowd. Right. Even when they're at their absolute worst, I think literally always they drew a crowd. Maybe yep. not a full house every single time, but there's no way in the world the Chicago Cubs weren't drawing people. Cleveland in Major League, that was pretty accurate. Yep. And I don't know about the Angels when they weren't very good. That wasn't really an audience issue with them, though. It was more a matter of Roger needed the Angels to win, so his dad would come back. And anyway, that was a dumb plot line. But these people picked these teams to be in these movies who were mostly kind of bad. And then not long after, some of them got really good, including the Cubs. They started making the playoffs in the later 90s. And for the most yeah. part in the last 20 or so years, have been a contender, including this year, were a first-place team. But appropriately at this point, they'd been good in 89, the year the Major League movie was made, when they made the playoffs. And by 93, when this came out, they weren't so good anymore. It's funny you said that the way that you did, because it was exactly the way I thought about it watching it. If you want it to be Chicago because Chicago stinks, cool, no problem. But this was a movie where they introduced a bunch of subplot elements and almost none of them. In fact, I think short of the Gary Busey romance subplot, as miscast as it might be, at least they paid it off at the end. And the main plot, they saw that through. Basically nothing else paid off in any significant way. They ended them, but they didn't pay them off. So the fact that there was nobody in the stands, it rang so untrue to me because anybody that knows baseball knows that, yeah, the Cubs were, at this point anyway, historically bad, and John Candy references that at mm -hmm. one point, but they always sold out because Wrigley was such a beloved stadium and the Cubbies so iconic that being bad was almost like their calling card for a long period of time. They were the Star Wars movies, yeah. <laughs> the Star Wars prequels. Yeah. Of baseball. You know, they, people are going to show up. Yeah, you know they stink. You know it's going to be a bad game, but you're going to go anyway because it's the Cubbies and it's Wrigley, right? So the fact that there were empty stadiums rang so untrue. And by contrast, it made so much sense in Major League for the reasons you cited because we all know that Cleveland has always struggled. Even when they were good, they would draw fans and then those fans would get bored and go away again. It's kind of like the Tampa Bay Rays of now. Mm. They can be as good as they want to be and they might draw a few more fans when fans are allowed to go. But it won't be a sellout crowd. The Cubs will still outdraw them even if the Cubbies are last. So that was a little distracting. And the only reason I could think of them including that incoherent bit of the movie was for the kind of evildoer nephew, I guess, to later try to sell 
Henry to the Yankees for $25 million? In September. The Yankees weren't going to buy him for that much money in September. But you also can't buy a player anymore. That, well, that, yeah, right. I got to ask you if you could make any sense of that, because I don't think... No, the, the this is why I don't like this movie. It knows nothing about baseball. <laughs> Thank you. The people that wrote this movie don't know how baseball works, and they don't know how contracts work, apparently, because you get Henry or his guardian to sign the initial contract. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're signed to the Cubs. And then this nephew that, for some reason, has some control over the team, even though he's only the nephew of the owner never said that he's the gm or anything mm. not only signs henry but then sells him to the yankees or well, tries to but doesn't work but yeah he gets the mother well jack tricks henry's mom into signing the papers which makes no sense because if you're the property of a team via contract in the context of mlb assuming it's not september so the trade deadline hasn't already passed you get traded and if your trade is for money then okay cool i guess but you don't need the parent of the kid to sign off on a new contract with, what, the Yankees? I couldn't wrap my head around it. Well, and the Yankees weren't quite good yet, too. Another thing they don't know about is the Yankees... Well, this movie doesn't understand, I should say. The Yankees weren't good. If this had been 94 and 85, they were getting better. It should have been the Blue Jays that they were going to. The Blue Jays are portrayed in Angels in the Outfield because they were the dominant team. So it made sense. They were coming off two straight World Series. Another thing, of course, the big game at the end. And John Kennedy says this, too. I'm not blaming him. He was told to say this by Daniel Stern and the writers, but... They played the Mets in that big game at the end. Last game of the regular season, right? Yes. And it says, whoever wins this goes to the World Series. Yeah, I thought that too. They go to the National League Championship Series. This isn't the 50s when, yes, if you win the American League or the National League, you go to the World Series. That was true when all these people that made this movie were little kids. Yeah. Are they that focused on that? I don't know. That was irritating to me. You have to know that. Angels in the outfield didn't know much about baseball either, and Major League had his issues. But this movie doesn't know anything about right there. That's annoying that he's just factually inaccurate. Get to the playoffs. That would be a big step for Chicago, although it wasn't because they made the playoffs in 89 and in 84. Yeah. And then playing the Mets in this play-in game. Well, one of the things that's kind of nice is that they couldn't play the Mets in the NLCS anyway for a long time in reality. But they did in 2015 because of the wild card situation. Right. And they're not even division mates anymore because in 93, when this is set, they still were. They were National League East opponents. It was going to be the next year before the strike. They were splitting everything up. The Cubs went to the Central. The Mets stayed in the East, but then they didn't have a World Series in 94. So it was 95 when they could have played each other in the championship series. But these two teams never met that far until 2015 in reality. But it's not like the movie understood any of those things. It was just saying, <laughs> this is for all the marbles. No, it isn't. If the crux of the movie was, well, Henry's got to throw the winning pitch to win the World Series for the Cubs, then at least I could kind of forgive them that level of factual error. But it doesn't. It ends before we get to that point. Although we do see the World Series ring on his right. hand later. Okay. Reasonably good questions comes up a lot with the episodes with Bev. Yeah. This previously crappy team won the World Series without Henry and without Chet. Yeah, because they both blew their arms just getting to the How did they even win a game in the championship series, forget the World Series, without their two best pitchers? It doesn't make sense. In addition to being so lazy that you can't even look up, as a screenwriter, I mean, look up how the baseball structure works, like the playoff structure. Because as you said, it's just as easy as saying, if they win this game, they're in the playoffs. And that's a victory payoff. And then you can still have them flash the ring at the end of the movie because we don't know how the playoffs go anyway. But you're right. How do they win without their two best pitchers? <laughs> it's funny that I like this movie more than you do because a lot of these things bug me just as much mm-hmm. as they did you. But one of the things that did bug me was 
when we start getting towards the latter stages of this movie, at the beginning of the movie, we get John Candy and his weird, clumsy assistant or mm. PA or whatever in the booth, engineer in the booth, with exploding radio equipment. I get that the team's bad, but they're still going to pay for radio equipment that doesn't explode in your face. Another great contrast to Major League is Major League had a drunken, cynical radio announcer, but it didn't stoop so low as look at this comic gag of the radio blowing up in John Candy's face. It knew just how far to go without pushing it over the line, I guess, where this movie didn't know where that line was. So at the beginning of the movie, John Candy's talking about how crappy this team is. Oh, it's been so long since we won a World Series, and you can see how disconsolate he is about this season. It's going to be awful again. And that was true. The Cubs didn't win for over 100 years. And at yeah. this point when this movie was made, it was, what, something like 70 or 80 years. It was going on that anyway. Yeah, 1908 or whatever. But Oh, no. so more than 80 years, right, exactly. So historically, 100% true, yeah. But for that season, at least, they play it out almost like the Major League movie played it out. They just suck. But by the time we get to the game-by-game -game sequences of Henry on the mound later in the season... Who doesn't join them until August, by the way. Yeah, okay, we got 15 games left in the season, and the Cubs are only three games back. Okay, if they're three games back of the playoffs in 1993, where we didn't yet have a wild card, so only four teams in all of baseball make the playoffs, you're either in a historically bad division that year... That could be. Which could be. Or you're actually a reasonable team. And I think in either case, you're actually a reasonable, if not good team, if you're only three games back. Then you'd have a crowd. Then you'd you would have, have a crowd. You would not have no one showing up in Wrigley Field. <sighs> so my head is exploding at this point. Because are they okay? If they're okay, then John Candy, why are you being such a morose putz about this? And why is there nobody in the stands? Or are they awful? In this case, why are they three games back? And how do they win the World Series? And I'm like, a cyclical loop of logic, or I'm trying to figure it out. I just landed at the end of it as, <laughs> I'm not going to think about anything strictly you baseball related. Because... It makes no effort to reconcile any logic with baseball. I did the dumb thing by using my brain. I watched this yeah, at work in the middle of the night, watching <laughs> it at work at three in the morning and very wide awake as I am these days, luckily, but maybe I should have been half asleep and I wouldn't have cared about that stuff so much. I was way more forgiving of Mystery Alaska than you were. And you hated that movie. You said it was down there with Ready to Rumble. Yeah. I would say this is down there with Ready to Rumble, maybe Ooh. even lower because that is supposed to be dumb. And I guess you could say this is supposed to be dumb too. But anytime somebody makes a movie about baseball this bad, it's hard for me to get behind it. The writer Sam Harper is his first ever screenplay. You look at his resume, it really fits because Cheaper by the Dozen, both of those, he wrote them. Ooh. There's some entertainment there, but how do you make Steve Martin and John Candy in this movie unfunny? And he did. Yeah. And a lot of middling comedies in his resume. And as we said, Daniel Stern was not an experienced director and never did it again. But then they did have Bill Conti doing the music, so the Rocky guy. And the cinematographer was Jack Green, who worked with Eastwood all the time. So they had very technical people working for him, Stern did, and a pretty good cast. We mentioned John Candy, uncredited in the role. Is I like he Bruce uncredited? Holt. Yeah, he wasn't even credited. He's I on think screen was, a fair bit. He's never in Chicago, per se, though. Did you notice that? He's always in the booth. I think oh, they man. had to have done that post-production. And we said Cool Runnings was the same year as this. That so was a big sports movie year for him. But I'm pretty sure they cast him post-production. I don't know why exactly. Maybe they couldn't get him until then. They thought, we'll get somebody big to do this. Best in show. Fred Willard steals that movie as the color man for the dog show was never there because they did it, I think, oh. post-production, but later on. Well, there's one time he interviews somebody, but they did it later on, as far as I remember. That's one of the great reasons that movie should have been nominated for the editing for the Oscar, to think that he was always there, but he never was. And Candy's the same in this. Bruce Altman, who plays Jack, the stepfather-to-be, doesn't become a stepfather. I think he's pretty good in this movie. He's okay. one of those that-guy actors you talk about all the time. Loved him in mm -hmm. Glengarry Glenn Ross the year before this. He's been in a ton of movies. He's one of those kinds of guys. You know he's going to get kicked out on his butt before the movie's over, and he does, although Amy Morton punches him right in the face, maybe taking a little bit too far. Eddie Bracken, who plays the owner of the team. 
not that funny, but he was a comedy legend. He was in a lot of Preston yeah. Sturgis movies long before in the 40s and so on. He's also in Home Alone too. He's the guy that owns the toy shop that gives yep. the turtle doves to Macaulay Culkin. And he's Mr. Wally in Vacation, which oh, yeah, John Candy was in too. So he's the guy that shows up at the very end when the Griswolds <laughs> hold John Candy hostage. <laughs> Albert Hall, the captain of the boat in Apocalypse Now. And also in Malcolm X, which was the year before yeah. this. He's got the Danny Glover role. Danny Glover and Angels in the Outfield the year after this. Although Glover's got way more to do in that movie than Hall has in this. Hall's biggest thing is mispronouncing Henry Rowan Gartner. Yeah. Not that hard to remember that name. There were moments when Hall did the mispronunciations, as stupid as that gag is. Made you laugh? It did make me laugh. Hey, Rosenbagger. And that's kind of funny. And it's a good actor delivering the line. You're not wrong. The cast is surprisingly good. Dan Hedaya, if we didn't say it, is the guy who plays the nephew. Dan Hedaya from yeah. Cheers. And he was also in the same year as this. In six movies, 1993, six films for this guy alone, and yeah. we covered him in the hurricane late last year. Well, I guarantee you, nobody is going to be able to put a face to the name Dan Hedaya, unless you are a quintessential movie buff. That Nick name. Tortelli! Okay, maybe, yeah. He's yeah. been in a lot of good movies, though. He's been in a ton, but as soon as you see the face on the screen, you're like, oh yeah, that guy, I've seen him in like 18 things in the last two years, because mm -hmm. he's always all over the place, and he's always good. He just tends to be cast... Not always the heel per se, but he's always got a little bit of a heel in his personality, mm -hmm. whatever he plays. And that's kind of the case in this movie. His character is nonsensical in the way it's portrayed. You're going to take over the team next year. You're the owner's nephew, but your role is never defined. And you do weird stuff throughout the movie that doesn't make sense. But even so, the scenes he's in are kind of fun. Same way. Not with, funny, but okay. No, not funny necessarily, but fun. And maybe this is why I'm a little bit more forgiving of this movie is it's super lazy if I managed to turn my brain off long enough to ignore that there are performances in it that i find fun altman jack because it didn't matter what the scene was it didn't matter what the character was doing even if he's just walking in to give his girlfriend of three weeks a necklace for some reason mm -hmm. every scene he's just chewing up the scenery and whether it's physically or in his deliveries because he's wearing the most outlandish outfits even for 1993 men were not wearing shirts like this <laughs> like, i'm sorry if you're not the fresh prince of bel-air or somebody you're not wearing this stuff <laughs> He's weirdly flashy and at moments way over the top when he gets confronted shortly before Amy Morton literally punches him out the door. Yeah, Mary. Just before that scene happens, he's talking about selling Henry to the Yankees and he's going with them and all that kind of thing. She says, no, you can't. I'm his mother. You can't do that. And he goes, yes, I can. With this weird, <laughs> very emphatically pronounced British accenty delivery on can for some reason. I bet Stern encouraged that. I loved it. That moment okay. out of him, I loved. Stern, I disliked his physical humor because it was just all-consuming all the time. He's not in the movie that much, but he's in the movie too much. At the same point. Does that make sense? He's barely no, in it. Well, not barely, but he's not in the movie for 20 minutes of screen you mean, time. You mean Stern, right? Yes. Yeah. Stern's in the movie for, let's say, 20 minutes. And I would say it should be more like 10. He's the pitching coach. It's not a dreadful performance, but the reason why Marv works, where he may have more screen time, actually, is because he's playing off of Pesci and, for that matter, off the kid. Right. But in this movie, he's playing off a kid, and it just isn't as effective. Maybe he thought it would be. Thomas Ian Nicholas is not a terrible actor. He's very cute. American Pie, that's what he went on to do. He's Kevin in those movies. The least likable, the least... Not he's unlikable, but the least relatable of the four main characters in that movie. He's fine. He's the one that's with Tara he's Reed. fine. But he hasn't really done that much. Mostly drecking his resume. It's not like he's untalented in this. Well, it's not his fault. Eepee-cheepee-cheepee-cheepee-cheepee-cheepee. Uh, I know the kids love that kind of thing. And I'm 46 yeah. years old watching this movie. But that was irritating. I wish the pitcher had thrown the ball at his head. <laughs> I did like the fact that the pitcher hit the next batter. And was like, that's because of you, kid. <laughs> now, it didn't stop him. And the fact that the umpires were just cool with this was another thing. But 
I had nothing really to think about Henry in this movie. It was neither objectionable to me nor particularly good. There were a few good moments I thought the actor pulled off okay, but then for every one of those, there was the moment you just described, so it kind of like balanced out to like an eh performance. Stern, I think you put it well, he's in it too much, and in Home Alone specifically, he's playing off Pesci, which is huge. Before, he's an incompetent boob that just gets abused by Macaulay Culkin. He demonstrates a weird level of skill that you wouldn't expect necessarily. Even in the second movie, when he like reaches into somebody's bucket and steals all of their chains. I sell a dollar fifty. Okay, that's so worthwhile. You're stupid, but competently stupid. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In this movie, he's so stupid. Why did the Cubs hire this man? Why does anybody tolerate his presence? Apparently can't figure out how doors work. You should have a personal support worker. You shouldn't be working <laughs> in Major League Baseball. You should be in a home being cared for. Nobody comes into the clubhouse in the entire big game at any point to see that he's locked away because he's there the whole game. Obviously, it's supposed to be for a gag. I get it. No. But that's just dumb. Somebody's going to go in there at some point, whether it be a player or a clubhouse person. There's probably yeah. a clubhouse person in there all the time in case somebody oh, needs sure anything, yeah. especially in, with a rich team like the Cubs. In my mind... There were people in and out of there all the time, and we're just like, oh, he's Uh, in there again? Whatever, screw it. Henry, when he comes aboard, isn't good right away. We hadn't seen this movie in a long time. If you had to make me make a bet, he's going to be awesome from the beginning. Knowing the basic plot line, I would have said, yes, he impresses everybody right away. It's smart that Fisher doesn't let anybody see him throw. That's a Bill Vec strategy. Bill Vec, one of the great marketers of all time, I believe with the White Sox in the 60s, 50s, whatever it was, maybe even the 70s, because I remember he had Disco Night at one point. That did not work. But he was a great marketer. Maybe with Cleveland as well, he worked for them. But that's smart on Fisher's part. Let's yeah. not show the kid off until he's in a game. And if Henry had been great right away, that would have been a sports cliche. So I'll give him credit for that. But then Henry does get pretty good as the movie plays out. And who's his pitching coach? Yeah, Chet to some degree. Chet's a good mentor. But it is Brickma as the pitching coach. So we're ripping on him right now. But the pitching coach should get credit for whenever a pitcher improves that much in a short period of time. Yeah. So maybe his ridiculous help helped. Yeah, if a pitcher improves, the pitching coach gets credit. Maybe that answers my question of why is this guy still employed in baseball? Somehow it works, but his performance is still not good. Stearns, yeah. that is. I do think the movie was trying to imply that it was Chet as mentor that was making all the improvements in spite of Brickma, more so than him having any kind of oh, yeah, influence. Okay. I don't want to give the movie any credit for foreshadowing or laying things The mother? Out. I actually kind of hated that whole thing, and I'll tell you why in a second. Okay. But playing into the end of the movie when the manager because Gary Busey blows out his shoulder and he says, put a fork in me, I'm done. No, not done for the night, done for the year. I felt my elbow go. And so he's finished for the year. He'd already been told his contract wasn't being renewed, although the nephew's now been kicked out on his butt, so who knows what's up. But the manager says to him... He's a little league coach next year, Chris. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's the show at the end. Yeah. but That pays well, I'm sure. (laughs) The manager says to him, let me keep my job until the end of the year or something, which implies that he did such a good job managing Henry that the team would want him to be the manager, not just the pitching coach, but the manager and kick, uh, what's his name? Rick Maud and also Albert Hall's character. Yeah, yeah. Albert Hall's character. But you're right. Martinella, yeah. No, I'm just going to become a Little League coach. A fracking Little League coach. Okay. So you mentioned the mother, and I assume you're talking about when the thing peels off Henry's glove Mm -hmm. at the end of the game and says, Mary. Why? This is one of those subplots, much like the Jack subplot and the $25 million subplot, which really didn't accomplish anything. They both got resolved, but nothing really changed. Why do you have this whole thing where Henry doesn't know who his dad is, but he thinks he's a baseball player? Uh, Granted, it's 1993, and maybe if they make this again in 2023, it'll be different, but... Why can't it just be his mom played baseball growing up, so he loves baseball? I think that's what they're saying, but then that's only revealed at the very end when he finds that. In the middle of a big game, because this is really that important. Yeah, Uh, yeah, where's my mom? Yeah, I was the baseball player. That's actually a nice modern touch for a 1993 movie. 
But it's one of those kinds of things where it's also undercut by the fact that who cares about that right now? He's a little busy. Yeah, you're right. It played into that reveal. But why did it have to be a reveal? What does it change for Henry knowing that his mother played baseball? He's spent his whole life imagining that a parent played baseball. Mm. It's not like he has a fractious relationship with his mother where they're not getting along and this no, somehow exactly. bridges, they, were they close love anyway. each other. Yeah. I don't understand why knowing that she was the one that played baseball. Now I can do it. Well, now he can throw a lob underhand right. that somehow fools a major league hitter. <laughs> yeah. Well, she does throw the underhand toss with the lotion earlier on that's way past Henry, which I think is supposed to be a gag to show that he's a terrible fielder. It's just a matter of playing. It's way over his head. It's true. But he doesn't even react to it enough to try to catch it. I think it's pretty much in the intersection. But anyway, but I guess that's supposed to be foreshadowing because later on she throws it it again and he catches it this time when he's on the conveyor belt at the airport. But then, of course, at the very end with the patch and the glove. So it, in a way, plays out three different ways. It's set up, sort of payoff, and then absolute payoff. Which might have worked. We talked about the Angels Nailfield thing with the flapping at the end, which was dumb and corny. But I can see why people would be affected by that. Tony Danza believes right. now when there's no angels there, but he thinks there is. And that's what faith is anyway. That movie is obviously about religion in a big way, and I didn't love that about it. But I wouldn't mm-hmm. deny Disney manipulated me in that film well enough. But I think this is supposed to be the same moment. It's supposed to be. But it doesn't. Really doesn't work. matter. No, exactly. It doesn't matter. And him That's throwing right. a softball pitch, which is what I do all the time, and blooper ball, of course, too. You've played in our league, that yeah. other league. We've talked about our CBC league lots of times, which is not blooper ball, but I've played in a blooper ball league for a long time. I'm a pretty good pitcher doing that, and I've gotten a lot of batters out by throwing the ball high, but I'm not getting out this giant Hedo guy, or Hedo, or how do they pronounce it? It's spelled H-E-D-D-O, and yeah, over-the-top yeah. performance that guy's giving, too. Tom... Milanovich. I kind of like that guy. The weird monster man that shows up twice in the movie. That's just the case to... he had the bat mentality, I yeah. guess, is what it comes down to. I'm going to mash this pitch so far, and then he's overconfident. And all he has to do is miss one, and he misses one. It is smart, though, in a way, because he knows his arm is blown out. He falls on his arm when he trips on a ball to break it, and then he falls on his arm and doesn't re-break it somehow. <laughs> but it's, I lost it. But then he deliberately guess, walks two guys. He picks off one. No, I'm wrong with that. The hidden ball trick. That was clever. Yeah. That is not legal, though, as I was reading online. Wait, did you say it is not legal? The way they do it is not legal. They all go to the mound, and the first baseman takes the ball. The guy takes his lead, and then Henry says, I'm holding the rosin bag. It has to be clear the pitcher has the ball before time is up and the play is happening again. Oh, so I that see. would not be a legal play. It would just be time. It might even be a balk, but it would not be an out on the runner's part. But I think that was well done for people that don't know that. So I'll cut them that slack. When I was a kid in Little League, we pulled off a hidden ball trick once. We played a team, I think, forfeited. I forget why. They didn't have enough kids, I guess, didn't show up. So we just merged everybody. And our coaches played, too. And they were a lot of fun. They were good guys. So they are 25 years old or something. And one of them wanted to do that. And I got to pitch. I never got to pitch. I pitched all right that day. But he wanted to do that thing. So I thought, fine. So I look over at him. Not obviously, just subtly. The runner at second base took his lead. And he doesn't tag him. And I'm thinking, I can't hold him to the ball. I don't even have the ball forever. And kind of like in this movie, he finally goes over, gotcha. So we did the same thing. It wasn't as obvious and over the top and smiley face, little punk kid on the mound type thing. <laughs> but we did it when I played Little League, ironically. So I'm mocking it, but I've been a part of it too. I didn't mind those two plays, the hidden ball trick. I hated the other one though. The, other the chicken. One... Again, I wanted to punch the kid in the face. It was stupid, but I gave them some credit for trying to write their way out of Henry's normalized arm. The hidden ball trick, the Blue Jays actually did a version of that four or five years ago. Ryan Goins playing second base. The runner's safe at second. The ball comes into second. And Goins just fanned the throw to the pitcher, you know, just relaying the ball into the pitcher to reset and everything, but hung on to the ball. 
the runner wasn't paying attention, so he took a step or two off the bag, adjusted his gloves and all that kind of stuff, and Goins tagged him out. It's like, I never threw him the ball back. It was a legal play. That's that, different. That's legal. It wasn't coming out of the timeout and all mm-hmm. of that, but it was a similar hidden ball trick play. You're right. The I'm going to dare you to run. and there's. Buck, 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 buck. I know that baseball doesn't have the same kind of misconduct penalties that a hockey would have or even technical foul type of stuff that basketball has, but... At a certain point, an umpire would just have to step in and say, kid, pick up the dang ball and let's get the game going because this is stupid. He might call him a ball on him if he doesn't start throwing the ball. Exactly. That was not as well done as the first thing. But like I said, I understood that they were trying to find a way to normalize his arm and still have them win. My question is, why does it have to happen that way? Why does it have to be three outs? I guess they figured it would be more opportunities for comedy maybe than if it were just happening. Well, they the think it's funny time. and we don't. That's part of it, yes. Maybe. I did like the thought that he falls, breaks his arm, it heals, and the tendons are tight. They heal to the bone or something, the doctor mm. said. So they tore loose of the bone in and exactly the right way. He knows that his arm is gone, but he feels good. <laughs> when he was in the doctor's office the first time, and the doctor's like, all right, pull your arm back, and you can hear... Yes. Eh. Again, over the top. Doesn't over the top. There. All I can think of is that that is not a healthy sound. If you're a doctor and you hear that, you should be worried. Mm. You shouldn't be like, oh, I've never seen that before. Oh, you whacked me in the face? Get in my office. <laughs> you just realize this kid has some sort of weird abnormality in his arm, and you just kick him out because he slapped you accidentally? That's not healthy. His arm's in a cast for months. I think this happens in April. Well, yeah, because the season's just starting. Yeah. And then he joins the team, the Cubs, that is, in August. By the way, he plays for the Pirates in Little League, and that was the dominant team in 92, 91. Yeah, 90, 91, 92. They were the team that one of those years could have gone to the World Series and never did. We see Bonds in this, right? Right. Yeah, Bond strikes out against him. Against Henry, that is. But yeah, he plays for the minor league team that was the dominant National League team. Well, the Braves, I guess, really were. And the West at that point, too. The Braves, of course, moved to the East the next year when we would have had the proper divisions had it not been for the strike. But anyway, Henry's arm is in a cast for many months. And I guess they do this with people sometimes, have it straight up in the air like that. But my question is, how does blood not rush out of your hand in minutes? And it's like this for weeks and months at a time. Granted, you're 12 years old. You don't have the same musculature as you will when you're an adult, but... I would have just thought the muscles would have atrophied and would have had to strengthen a little bit before it starts throwing. Your arm should just go numb, like holding it straight up and down for 8, 12 hours a day, yeah. right? And maybe sometimes that's the way casts are. I don't know. They could have just had it be straight out. They probably think it's, again, funny that it's, it's straight outside up. of a truck or something like that. Hey, I'm like, I'm waving at everybody. Yeah, or big, my hands up in the air in class. You've mentioned a number of dumb gags. That might have been the one that irked me the most for being stupid because everyone's got their hands up and then they all put them down and you should see Henry's arm in the cast and the teacher's like, oh, oh, what? The teacher knows by then why his arm's in the air. <laughs> you know why his kid's arm's in the air. Maybe what? his teacher's the dumbest person alive. Although, interestingly, the last movie we talked about was Love and Basketball and one of our favorite moments is when Monica leaves her arm in the air for enough a long time and gets punished for it when she shoots <laughs> a three in practice. That's true. Same kind of thing Ooh, as this. Arm in the air. Not so good in both cases, I guess. This kid obviously loves baseball and he's terrible at it, but he probably missed his calling trying to play baseball. He should have been a high jumper or something. Because when he goes to retrieve that ball, <laughs> he slips on it. A, he's running quite slowly. Yes. B, I know it's not the ball he's chasing, but kid, watch where you're going, right? And C, when he slips, he doesn't just slide and fall. You get eight different camera angles, and in one of them, just before he falls to the ground, he's like six feet in the air. Maybe 16 feet yeah. in the air. <laughs> wow. 
this kid's got some spring in his step. I mean, he should have been a high jumper. Either that or he's got weird velocity that doesn't come across on screen. And I just didn't see what was happening necessarily the fall. He has magic, I think. I don't know why they didn't just have him slip off the backseat of the bleachers or something and fall that way. Why it had to be this utterly unbelievable, goofy trip and fall mm-hmm. accident. Although I guess it mirrors what happens at the end of the movie. Is that meant to be the idea when he slips again? The okay. same way as what happened when the kid threw the ball and he tripped on it after... When no, he was going after no one ball, he tripped on another ball is what it was. That's what it was, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. To the degree where he runs into his mother at the beginning of the movie and she's like, where are you going? I got a baseball game. Oh, you're playing baseball? Oh, yeah, that's right. You're on a team, aren't you? Ugh. You sure you want to go, Henry? And this is the person that is the baseball person. <laughs> yeah, she should be thrilled her kid even wants to play, let alone is on the team. Even if he's just on the bench, she should be thrilled he's part of any of that. And she rags on him, too. What does she say? Something to the extent of, if you don't get to play again, you got to do the dishes or something like that? Mm. She's so... Dis- she's got a snark about her. I kind of like her, actually. I liked her from this point onwards, because the actress at that moment made the weirdest choices I've seen. One, for ragging on Henry, but mostly because when Henry's running to his baseball game with his two buddies, Clark and George or whatever... Mm-hmm. I actually kind of liked the kid, and I can't remember which is which, but the kid with the spiky blonde hair. That's Patrick Lebrecht, and then Robert Gorman is Clark. Okay, so George then. Yeah, the kid who played Clark did quite a few different movies and some TV shows. You've definitely seen that face before. We looked oh, yeah. up before we started. I thought for sure I'd seen him in something else that I've watched in Disney Plus the last couple months, but I guess not. I'm pretty sure both of them had a number of roles when they were younger, but at least the kid with the blonde hair, he had some fun lines, creepy lines at times, but still some fun lines. So the mother's greeting the three of them. She goes, Henry, where are you going? A baseball game, whatever. And then she turns to the kids and goes, hi, George. And then turns to the other kid and goes, hi, Clark. Right. Like a really yeah. creepy, yeah. sexy intonation. What's going on here? These 12-year-old kids, single mom. I don't want to think about this in terms of uh, Mrs. Robinson context. Right. Like it's super creepy all of a sudden. At least with Mrs. Robinson, everyone was legal age. But what about the creepy Pepsi commercial? The women stripping him right. down. Yeah, that He's was still weird. a 12-year-old kid. They're fawning over him. Doesn't the director say, be more sexy? Yes. Now, I think I said the girls, but regardless of the women, but still, you hear Ray Charles. I thought for sure we'd get Ray Charles in the movie, but he's actually in it. They just play his voice, but that commercial was a weird idea. Pepsi needs to revisit its marketing. It's one thing for Jack to be a creep, but why are the Pepsi people creeps? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I like Pepsi. They made me look bad. They made themselves look bad. At least in movies like Major League, if you got players doing sexy commercials, they're adults. If Pepsi hires a 12-year-old baseball phenom to be their spokesperson, you figure they'll have him skateboarding or in 93, what, hacky sack? Or is that too soon? Could be. Something hip and cool, not playing piano, getting fawned over by some sexy ladies. Wrong crowd, Pepsi, wrong crowd. We've covered at least one movie like this, though, too, where the person's a phenom. Any given Sunday, that was it. When Jamie Foxx's character finally gets to play and does well, maybe two or three games at the most, but he's suddenly a media sensation, which I guess can happen, but doesn't usually happen in a matter of a couple of weeks of football action. And as we've been saying, Henry plays on this team for what would be no more than a month and a half because it would be mid-August to late September. And it's not like he's that good from the very beginning. He gets good pretty fast, but the first couple games he's not. So for him to get that kind of action, I guess because he's a kid and that's why it would get media attention. And that's actually one thing that's probably true. If they ever could do it, they probably don't have the ability. It's probably one of those rules where you can't have a kid play Major League Baseball, someone who's actually this young. Maybe they don't. I don't know. No one would ever be talented enough anyway at 12 years old. Maybe 15, possibly. But that would draw a lot of media attention. So I guess he might get endorsement deals from companies, especially if Jack is seeking them out. But anyway... I'm in way too hard on this movie. I know if I was 12, I'd probably like it. I think when I saw it before, I did, but that was a long time ago. But I just watched the movie the whole time thinking, at least know something about baseball. It's my biggest problem. It's so absurd. It knows nothing about the sport. Busey looks terrible playing this sport. 
The whole thing's a fantasy, I get it, but couldn't you be at least somewhat accurate? I guess they just wanted to make the kids giggle. This movie is entirely based on two premises. One, that kids will enjoy some stupid, goofy humor. And for a movie that really is leaning into the childish humor, it doesn't really lean too hard into it. It seems to, at times, straddle this fence. we got to amuse the kids, right? So we got to have all this juvenile humor. Not crude humor in any way, shape, or form. There's nothing crude about this movie. No Except sp- maybe that Pepsi commercial. That's not even crude. That's creepy. But there's no, like, poop humor and, and stuff. True, like, no, no swearing, No yeah. vomit. They don't go that lowbrow with it. But they also don't make it smart enough to appeal to adults. So it missed its mark a little bit, but I feel like that's what it was going for. But then also trying to appeal to the fantasy side of the whole thing. Random 12-year-old kid suddenly playing for the team he mm-hmm. loves. And like I said off the top, that's kind of what I remember about this movie from when it came out and being that same age. That kind of fantastical, oh, maybe one day if I somehow bust my elbow, it could be me. <laughs> I have no recollection of what I actually thought about the movie when I watched it, other than fuzzy nostalgia for it. So I can't say if I watched it and thought, oh, this is actually not very good. I probably did because I was an 80-year-old man when I was 12 years old. But the thing that bugged me more than anything else, aside from the laziness of it, because I agree with you 100%, the writing is just plain lazy and that they made no effort to fact-check anything, to make it realistic in any way, shape, or form. The subplots that they introduced for no good reason that didn't do anything and just made the movie do confusing things at times. The $25 million contract thing, the nephew taking over the team thing, Who's a hot dog guy at the end of the movie. Yeah. Demoted pretty bad. (laughs) The no fans in the stands thing, because we know anybody that follows baseball knows that could never be the case. And at one point, the nephew even says, we need to sell out however many games. Every single game the rest of the year. Yeah, And they don't. They probably sell out most of them, but not every one of them. Yeah. We know how much money the Cubs make. The Jack thing, I kind of get why he was there, but that plot was dumb. The Mary with the name and the glove thing, I thought was stupid. I like the fact that it was the mom and not the dad, but just have it from the beginning. Mm-hmm. The Daniel Stern stuff just made me nauseated because he's so much better than that. And John Candy, like you said, this you was a, mo- a movie that managed to waste one of the great comedic talents yep. of his era. One of his last movies, too. Oh. And four years earlier, one of the great broadcasting performances by Bob Uecker. And then right. seven years later, one of the other great broadcasting performances in the sporty type movie in Best in Show with Fred Willard. Yeah, Bob Uecker, by comparison, by any standard, he was great in Major League. But the fact that we watched that movie, and there's so many comparables between this mm-hmm. and Major League in the broad strokes. Well, even Ranch Wilder and Angels in the Outfield. Much better. Great character name and a good performance, yeah. yeah. Candy's just given nothing to do, though. Maybe they said improv, and he didn't feel like improv I'm not trying to rag on John Candy. It just felt like he was in this movie sporadically with no meaningful lines and no real opportunities to make jokes. And so, I don't know what it was. He and Stern, by the way, are both in Home Alone, but they had never had any scenes together. Candy is with Catherine Harris' character when she's finally back in the Chicago area, learning U-Haul or something, going back to Chicago. Yeah, I forgot he was in that movie. So you can't score this movie, I don't think. If you think you can or should, (laughs) your priorities are really messed up. You shouldn't be able to score this movie, but if you catch that Pepsi commercial shoot at just (laughs) the right time, (laughs) who knows? Busey, though. Hubba, hubba. That mustache, man. He's more appealing in Point Break, actually, because he's so goofy and silly and fun. He is more appealing, 100%. He does over the top so well that it's a bummer to see him in a morose role, as much as I did talk him up earlier. Family, give me two. (laughs) Son, mother, give me two. Fastballs. And at the end, he's coaching the team, so I guess he has both of them. I'm giving this movie a 3 out of 10. I really hated it. It's down there with Ready to Rumble for me, and I can't think of the other ones I put in the bottom five, but this is definitely there. At least know something about the sport you're covering. I get it. Movies take months of pre-production. Why can't Sam Harper do a little bit, or Daniel Stern? 
do a little bit of research. Usually when we talk about the portrayal of the sport, you're saying 10 out of 10, top notch, nailed it in every respect. <laughs> no, I agree. It's not good. I'd probably give it a slightly higher score than you just because of the Jack stuff, the Gary Busey stuff. It sounds like I enjoyed it a little bit more than you did. But even so, it's like a 4 out of 10 tops kind well, of Well, it's one more point. That's not much more. I will watch Angels in Outfield again, maybe, but I'm never watching this movie again. I'm, I'm never watching this again yeah. either. I just thought it was one of those interesting, how does my childhood memory... Well, this is why we wanted to do this podcast, especially yeah. you in the first place. So let's look back at movies when, especially you were around 12, 13, 14 years old. And we've now covered... A lot of the ones you first talked about, I'm pretty sure this was in that same conversation. Most of them are not good movies, with some very specific exceptions, like Karate Kid. And Major League is good. Major League is a great movie. Build of Dreams, obviously, is great. Most of the movies, being a kid, you remember, are are usually a bit more lighthearted, especially Mm -hmm. in the sporting genre. Field of Dreams is one of those rare exceptions where it's a very emotional movie. Still, you can watch it at 10 years old and still appreciate it for being a great movie. But all the movies that we've watched that I remembered as a kid, and I was slightly disappointed by it, this was probably the worst movie that we've watched. Fair. But I'm strangely not as upset about it as I thought I would be. Well, I don't know if I said this already, too. My biggest problem with a movie like this is be funny. Be more funny. Agreed. And it wasn't at all. Well, we're not going to be covering a movie from our youth next time we converge when we get into November. In two weeks, we'll dig into a subject that hasn't been discussed on this channel in over two years, and that's poker. Mully's Game on Netflix, the Jessica Chastain poker film. I only saw that once, so I remember it being pretty solid. Aaron Sorkin directed that. Yeah. We record this about two weeks before Halloween, so Halloween's only a few days away, so for those who like it, like I do, happy Halloween! Spooky. Spooky of the year. So, we're both on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. He is at ScoringAtMovies, and we are podcast-wise pretty much wherever you can find them. I won't have to go through all the names, because if you like podcasts, you can probably find ours wherever podcasts are. Wherever the frack you download there podcasts. There you go. Nicely done. This was a fracking bad movie. So, take her easy, cubbies. I need to go vomit. Oh.